So most of those Internet companies of the dot-com era are out of business. Yeah. You survived. What was it that made you to survive and virtually the rest of them are gone? Well, um, I, it's very, that whole period is very interesting because the stock is not the company and the company is not the stock. And so as I watched the stock fall from 113 to 6, I was also watching all of our internal business metrics, number of customers, profit per unit, um, uh, you know, uh, everything you can imagine, defects, etc. Every single thing about the business was getting better and fast. And so as the stock price was going the wrong way, everything inside the company was going the right way. And um, uh, I, you know, so I wasn't, we didn't need to go back to the capital markets. We didn't need more money. The only reason, uh, you know, a financial uh, bust like the internet bubble bursting is, you know, it makes it really hard to raise money. But, you know, we already had the money we needed. So we just needed to continue to progress. Well, Wall Street kept saying, well, Amazon's not making any money. They're just getting customers. Where's the profits? Where are the profits? And Wall Street kept beating you up on that. And your response was, I don't really care what you think? Well, I was on um, television with Tom Brokaw. He pulled together half a dozen Internet entrepreneurs from that era. This is, you know, I think it was right before the bubble burst, maybe, or right after. I can't remember. But in that area. And he was interviewing all of us. And he finally turned to me and he said, Mr. Bezos, can you even spell profit? And Tom, by the way, Tom Brokaw is now one of my good friends. And, but he's like, can you even spell profit? And I said, sure, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. And um, he, he burst out laughing. And, and That was Jeff Bezos talking about Amazon's experience of the dot-com crash at the Economic Club of Washington, D.C. It was 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst. New internet-based companies whose value had surged suddenly found their world collapsing. The tech-focused Nasdaq index in America would lose 80% of its value and would not return to the same levels until 2015. Amazon survived, but many businesses did not, including Pets.com, Webvan and startups in the UK. I'm Graham Ruddick, and you're listening to Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories from the past. In this episode, we're looking back at the dot-com crash and what lessons can be learned from what happened. To do so, we speak to Rob Hornby, the head of Europe, Middle East and Africa for consultancy firm Alex Partners and someone who has spent his career working in the technology industry. So when the dot-com boom and then bust happened, I was working for Arthur Anderson and I was one of their technology consultants. And I was a pretty junior guy, but I was certainly in the midst of things because we were consulting. And we were contributing really to that whole discussion as to what was possible, what was going to happen. And we were very excited about it. And I can remember not just at a professional level, but at a personal level, being with my colleagues, and we were all desperate to get a part of the economic growth. And we were investing every bit of spare money we had in these technology funds. And of course, watching the value of those funds grow extraordinarily until, of course, they stopped growing 
and they declined in the most extraordinary way. And of course, the boom and the bust were in a very short time. I think the trigger for a change of sentiment in the market back then was the realization that some of these very big investments were not going to make a profit and their business models were not sufficiently robust to do that. And of course, huge amounts of speculative money, perhaps for the first time, had been invested in companies that were not profitable, but seemed to have the prospect to become profitable. The whole dynamic then was just about growth. And there was a I think a day of reckoning when we started to see that the company fundamentals in some cases were just not there. They'd been marketing-led, they'd had great promise, everyone was very excited, uh, but eventually you need to have results. And as soon as two or three of the big invested dominoes started to fall, of course, everyone else followed suit. And there was a really horribly timed example with the whole last minute dot com because they listed at an extraordinary valuation. I think they're almost at a billion pounds valuation at one point. And over the course of literally a few days, they saw their valuation drop dramatically because they caught the market just at the end of the up cycle and they suffered a very dramatic for I think we all remember them just because of the timing. So when you look back then to now, what are the similarities? There are some important similarities, I think. So the first the first is that the dot-com boom was marketing-led. Uh, so there was a lot of marketing spend creating a very strong sense that the future was unfolding before us. It, it's a very seductive thing. And I think the current digital boom is also very much marketing-led. So that is something that's definitely similar. They're both based on advances in technology. The first, of course, was the creation of the internet as something that ordinary people could have access to. And so that was a huge technological advance. And of course, we all got very excited about what was possible, a whole new paradigm of doing business and also kind of doing life. The digital boom is actually a bit more subtle, but in some ways more powerful because as a technologist for 30 years now, somewhere around 2010, all the things we'd been claiming for all these years suddenly were nearly true. So a combination of advances in technology, the cloud being one of them, some of the machine learning advanced analytics was another factor, the continuing increase in compute power over the years, year on year on year, and just a maturing of some of the ways that digital products and software products were built. Those things converged around 2010 And the combination of all of them suddenly made new things possible. And for many of us, it was the convergence of things that we've been waiting for for all these years. And so digital, this digital boom is very much built on something real, which is an advance 
in the underlying technology. That's also similar. The other thing that's rather depressingly similar is the fact that people making investments have a huge spectrum of insight, rigor, and capability as they make their investments. In the in the original dot-com, I think you could forgive people for being a bit blind because it was genuinely new. But we do seem to have learned very little between then and now in some cases. I'm not talking now about the specialist investors who live in the digital world. I'm talking really about the more general investors. And I was reading not very long ago that people were making investments without doing diligence because there was such a froth around everything that there wasn't time for diligence. And as a consequence, people genuinely don't know what they are buying into. And that is very similar, but for different reasons. I think the excuses are less convincing this time around. There's a FOMO idea in both occasions, is that right? I think FOMO is a really big factor. Of course, FOMO as a term didn't exist in the original boom. The FOMO in the original boom, I think, was very much at the individual level. People wanted to be entrepreneurs. Suddenly, the internet provided a vehicle by which ordinary people could have an idea, they could pitch an idea, they could get funding, and they could become very wealthy in their own minds. It unlocked a whole new paradigm, and people wanted to be on that bandwagon. The other thing was individuals wanted to make money from this boom, and there was very much an individual investor dynamic going on where you talk to your friends and you didn't want to be left out because it looked too good to be true. And of course, that's exactly what it was, but you didn't want to miss out at the time. The FOMO attached to digital in the current situation is a bit different. I think it's more a corporate-led FOMO. So executives don't want to be seen to be the laggards because the analysts are commenting, other investors are commenting. They want to see evidence of companies digitally transforming. It's reflected in their valuations if they have them. And there's a very strong sense that you need to be seen to be doing something significant if you're leading a business. And some of those people don't know exactly what it is that they should do, but they do know that they need to do something. And we see another kind of FOMO uh, that's happening led by corporate executives who who need to be seen to be moving with the times. It's fascinating hearing you talking about that because are you basically saying that sort of a key lesson from the initial dot-com crash and, and from today is that technology alone is not enough. You've got to work out how to use it and you can't just claim that you're going to be able to do this with it. Technology has never been enough to create a transformational outcome for businesses. That's a truism of my whole career. And I think it's probably a a truism that will continue. And of course, the other problem with getting the right value creation from technology is technologists, because they're very focused on the technology. And they tend to make decisions based on the technology itself What you need and what's been very difficult is to bring a business frame of mind 
into the technology world and somehow fuse the two. That's proved very difficult for a very long time. I don't think that problem is going to be entirely solved until the generation of digital natives who started to emerge in in the mid-2000s start to become the senior leaders of businesses. And then they will have an intuitive understanding of technology. I think we'll finally see a fusion of technical know-how and business thinking to bring those domains together in a way that's eluded us for a long time. Are you basically saying there that the people who who have developed the technology and the people who are buying it, so big companies, traditional CEOs, there's a big knowledge gap there and that those CEOs and boards and companies didn't really know what they were buying and that's been a problem in the previous dot-com cycle and and has been a problem in, in in this one too. Let me be really honest about the ecosystem as I see it. So what we've got is very clever technologists who are creating technical advances. There's no doubt about that. We then have very big, well-funded marketing departments of the tech companies that those folk work for who have to create a buzz in order to sell that technology. The technology is usually at that point relatively unproven. So there's a big push from a marketing perspective. Then in the wider ecosystem, you've got consultants, you've got system integrators. There's a whole group of entities who have an interest in significant purchases of product and large-scale implementations. The people who generally that's not in the interest of are the clients, the actual end businesses, and they end up taking all the risk, really. And they're normally in a position where it's difficult to control all the other parties that are involved. And so what we see is a trail of wreckage going back 30 years or more of these attempted very big implementations of technology that almost never are on time, almost never deliver the benefits that they're supposed to. And so nowadays, digital allows a different paradigm. It allows you to implement something small, to then perfect it small, and as soon as it's ready, to scale it very aggressively. That's a paradigm that, in my opinion, works very well. The problem is it's not really in the interests of anyone in the ecosystem who wants to make money from large projects. And so at the moment, there's a tension between the best way of doing things and the way that the services industry around doing those things is set up and its economic model. And that's causing us some issues. It's not really showing signs either of adapting in the way that it should. What happened in the aftermath of the dot-com crash? Because good and bad companies were caught up in the wreckage. What was it like then trying to piece it back together in terms of what were the technologies and the businesses worth building on? You write that good and bad companies suffered in exactly the same way because people couldn't tell the difference between them. And quite a lot of the investments were in generalized funds. And and so they just declined together. And I think there was an inevitable period of reflection 
And there was some reluctance to enter the market until it showed signs of recovery. Some of the stronger companies did survive and they began to grow again. And I think we then saw a more gradual and normalized investment cycle. But the really big thing that happened that was good from the dot-com boom and even the crash is that a huge infrastructure had been built and everything that followed was able to leverage that infrastructure which had been put in place in a very short space of time, two to three years. It could have taken 10 to 15 on an incremental basis had we not had this hyped period of very accelerated investment. So that period really paved the way for everything that followed. And that's happening again now because the cloud infrastructures that are being built and all that compute power that is being made available is actually going to enable businesses for the next 20 years, whether the specific companies succeed or fail in the short term. Are you, having worked through that initial rise and fall, are you more cynical of new technologies as a result? I've always had a healthy scepticism about new technology because if I think about my own career, I lived through uh, the rise of PCs. Of course, what they were going to do was remove paper from the office. And uh, if you look at the average office today, it's awash with paper. That has simply not happened. And then we had ERP, and ERP was going to make every business completely integrated with highly efficient processes and great operational information. I think we all know that that's not happened either. After ERP, we saw CRM, which was going to revolutionize the way we connected with customers. And of course, we've seen that the promises of the radical change in those relationships has not happened. Big data came and went. In fact, you'll never hear that term anymore. And then we had digital transformation, which has lasted for several years, but has really resulted in quite a lot of failure. And now we see the rise of AI. Now, in each case, something real and something important has changed in businesses. ERP has brought a basic platform for process. CRM has allowed us to keep track of customer relationships. So something real did happen. It was a fraction of what was promised. The implementation was painful and people's expectations had to be tempered. That's happened with every single cycle that I've seen. And I don't think we're going to suddenly see one that defies that. And therefore, AI, which is the current one in progress, I think it will follow the same cycle. In fact, we see it with ChatGPT. ChatGPT is very clever. It's a really compelling interface. It's got access to vast online resources. It can very cleverly synthesize data and present it back. But if you were to listen to some people, you'd believe it was sentient and it was plotting the demise of the world. Of course, it's not sentient. It's just a giant library with a very clever interface. And of course, it could become something else, but that's not what it is at the moment. And so I see, I see no evidence that we are moving away 
from taking something interesting and potentially very useful, hyping it up into unrealistic terms, and then watching it fail to meet those expectations, but finally become something useful. I think we're in the same cycle with AI right now, following exactly the same trajectory as everything else that I've seen in the last 30 years. How many of those cycles that you've touched on are consultants to blame for? Things like digital transformation and CRM and saying to companies, you need this. Consultants clearly are part of the ecosystem that benefits from hyping these things up because they benefit from large projects. But so do product companies, so do system integrators, so do futurists, so do academics. There are so many parties that benefit from the hype cycle that I think it's difficult to lay the blame at one specific part. And you could, if you were very cynical, see it as some kind of conspiracy against the actual end users of these technologies. That's something that does need to be tempered in my view. And as I say, I'm not, I'm not optimistic that that dynamic will change very much until the buyers of those products and services have a lot more innate understanding of technology. You talked about marketing earlier. How much is that a warning sign if marketing spending is sort of the big driver of the technology in terms of that's where all the revenue is coming from is people using it to market products? Marketing is very powerful. I guess we know that. Uh, that's why so much money is spent on it. And because of all the players who benefit from the creation of the hype cycle, marketing is used to do the generating. And quite a number of different marketing entities take part. We've talked about them. Uh, so the product people, the services people, they all play a part in, in injecting investment into the marketing effort and the combinational effect of that creates the hype cycle so marketing is something we should be careful of um, even the people who you meet in the pre-sales cycle of technology they're not technologists even if they look and sound like them they are salespeople, and it's very very easy to be taken in because they're very very skilled so we should be sceptical, and I, th I think we should be a bit cynical. What we should be pushing for is proofs of concept and prototypes, because the way to actually find out what's possible is to attempt to do something small and real. And if the various providers of the products and services are reluctant to engage in that kind of exercise, I think then you really do need to be alert as to why that could be. How much does human fallibility play a part in all of this? In, in you know, we've touched on this before, but sort of particularly towards the end of cycle, and you've seen that particularly in crypto, but it's not just crypto. How, when things are unwinding, does that get exposed? It's my view in, in my old age that human fallibility is at the root of most of what goes wrong. Our susceptibility to hubris our overambition, our selective use of facts, our inability to manage complexity. I think these things are the biggest issues in technology, in digital, and they're probably at the heart of everything. 
I mean, in in the in the ages of building bridges and so on, I think it was the same. So we need to be acutely aware, I think, of the human element of everything that we do with technology, because the human element has a bigger bearing on the outcome than the technology itself. And that's never been more true because the technologies are more mature, they are more stable, they're more understood, they're more fit for purpose. The thing that's variable is the human endeavor, how it's conceived and then how it's executed. And that hasn't really improved very much in the last three or four decades, in my view. The other thing I've heard you say before is that in the end, the fundamentals always matter. Is that one of the key lessons you would take from the initial dot-com boom and bust? It is my opinion that the fundamentals eventually matter. I think I might be in a minority in having that opinion because I think some people would rather say, look, you're missing the point. There's a whole new paradigm. There's a whole new way of looking at the world. Digital company valuations are different. We look at them in a completely different way. It's still my view that in the long run, the fundamentals of a business and and their ability to execute and ultimately to make money eventually determine the long-term outcome. I think we're seeing that again, finally. Some of these companies appear to have defied gravity for a long time, but I think we are seeing that now. And I think we'll always see that because in the end, companies have to produce a profit outcome, even if growth allows them to exist for an extended period before they do. And that's the thing that ultimately brought down the dot-com bubble. And I think that's ultimately what's bringing down some of the digital supervaluations that we see today. Given he worked for Arthur Anderson during the dot-com crash, Rob Hornby also has a unique perspective on the collapse of that accountancy and consultancy firm. Arthur Anderson collapsed in 2002 in the aftermath of the Enron scandal. Arthur Anderson had audited Enron. So Arthur Anderson was kind of the place where I learned my corporate skills. I'd been in a startup before that, which made me very confident. And I could talk to very senior people, I could sell an idea, but I had no basic disciplines uh, that you need in business. And Arthur Anderson drove those into me through a fairly brutal process. But I have to say, I absolutely loved working at Anderson. And it had an incredible culture and a lot of talent And I think it was very sad when clearly gaps in its governance caused the entire global firm to unravel. And it's interesting because I'm still in touch with many of the people who I worked with at that time. I guess that says something in itself. But those people have been unusually successful as a generalization. So the kind of Anderson diaspora has risen into very senior positions in lots of different contexts. And so for us, it was normal because people of my vintage, it was a first or second job. But as we look back now, there was something special in that time. There was something special in the culture, which we only really learned to appreciate when it was too late. Of course, that's not to say that I understand or understood what was going on. 
uh, and the weaknesses in in governance that eventually caused the demise of the firm. Uh, but as someone just part of that organization, it was actually very exciting. And we often say, some of us who still talk from those days, about finding a place to work that's the most similar we can find to those days. So I think we're still aspiring to it, perhaps what, after all this time. What earmarked it as as that sort of place? What What made it so productive? I think there are a few things. The first was it had a lot of positive energy. And it sounds very cliched and very high level, but you could feel it. There was a lot of creative energy. There was, there was a lot of belief that we could really create something and be something. And it was quite infectious. The second thing is it was just a wash with talent. I don't actually even know why, but there were a lot of people who were just very good at their jobs. They were very good thinkers. They had interpersonal skills as well. And being amongst people who were so capable, I think allowed all of us to raise our game because the benchmark was really high. And there was also a unusual, I think particularly now in similar organizations, there was a very global outlook and a very global culture. And you could call anyone anywhere in the world with a realistic expectation that they would help you if they could. And they would expect the same of you. And that's still a very high ideal and still a difficult thing to achieve in, in global businesses. Uh, but it was embedded deep in the Anderson culture. Were you there to the very end? I was there till the very end. I actually moved to Sky Television with one of the senior partners who, who left Anderson on its last day. Uh, so I went into the corporate world. Of course, many of my colleagues went into Deloitte and again became very successful leaders in that in that organisation up to and including now. What was that last day like? The last day was a bit odd because... I think many of us understood that there was culpability and that's why the firm had suffered in the way that it had. But for most of us, that felt very remote from the people we knew and the things we had seen. And so there was a very deep sense of loss, actually. And I think a, a profound sense of regret that it had, had come to this so yeah, it was an emotional time. I, I think people felt that Anderson had formed them in many ways, and in many ways it had. Uh, and and so it, it it was with huge regret, I think, that that last day took place. Of course, people very quickly started to have to think about the place that they'd gone to. And for the people who, in the UK, in the consulting business, moved from Anderson to Deloitte, of course, there was some continuity because a very big group of people had gone together. So perhaps not as different for them uh, compared to those of us who, who went to do something different. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. There, you will find business news and analysis throughout the week, as well as bonus content from the podcast. You can sign up at optolunch.substack.com.